Welcome to Bike Talk, streaming in Southern California at KPFK, Western Massachusetts at Valley Free Radio, WMBR in Cambridge, and worldwide at biketalk.org. Welcome to Bike Talk. My name is Lindsay Sturman, and today we have Taylor and Nick to tell us about what's on the show today. Hey, Lindsay. Hey, Nick. During the pandemic, a lot of cities developed these things called slow streets, where they slowed the speed of cars down on their streets. But as the pandemic waned, so did a lot of those slow streets, except for in San Francisco, where some advocates got together and just passed a a bill that made 16 slow streets permanent. And I'll be talking to those advocates. Nick? Wow. Thanks, Taylor. And then we have an interview from Isabella Chu, who talks about biking and public health. And then we have Galen Moog to talk about bike share and how it took off during the Boston transit shutdown in September. Great. And we have a special guest with us today, uh, a future co-host, Seamus Garrity. He's a bike advocate and some call him the voice of biking in LA personified. The voice of biking in LA. (laughs) And his day job, we may know him from, he is assembly member, Laura Friedman, a hero of the movement. He is her principal field rep and transportation housing policy deputy in the district office. And he's here in his private capacity to help us understand policy and the politics of biking from the inside. Welcome, Seamus. Hey, Lindsay. Hey, Taylor. Hey, Nick. Um, I am very excited to be here. I'm looking to talk to elected officials and advocates and talk about the transformation that many of us believe is coming uh, regarding multimodal transportation. One thing you want for the holidays for biking. Oh, I know what Um, I want. I I want Jody Rosen's book, Two Wheels Good, The History and Mystery of the Bicycle. I just want a dash in Silver Lake. Is that that too much to ask for? (laughs) That's a shuttle. (laughs) Nice. And I would like some more pottery with bicycles painted on them, which my daughter makes for me. Hey. Thanks, everybody. Now, Taylor Nichols with some guests from San Francisco to talk about their success with slow streets. Everybody knows that during the pandemic, a lot of cities started what's called slow streets, where they changed the infrastructure of the street with temporary signage to make it a slow street so that pedestrians and cyclists and dog walkers and all that could enjoy the streets and not be too close and and be socially distanced during the pandemic. But as we've come out of the pandemic, a lot of cities are going back to regular streets and trashing the whole slow streets ideas. And uh, in San Francisco, they're fighting back on that. So today I have four guests, all from San Francisco. Robin Pam of the Kids Safe Street San Francisco is here. Hi, Robin. Welcome to Bike Talk. Yeah, thanks for the intro. The At the beginning of the pandemic, like many cities, San Francisco implemented a slow streets program across over 30 streets in the city. They introduced temporary signage to help make it clear that pedestrians and people on bicycles were allowed to use the road just as much as cars were for social distancing and recreation. And what we've seen in the last year and a half is that these spaces have become incredibly popular at the local neighborhood level. Many different slow streets groups have formed across the city to support their local slow street with hundreds of members in each of these groups and strong local leaders like some of the amazing women that we're joined by today on this podcast as well. Last week, the San Francisco MTA Board of Directors voted to make 16 slow streets permanent and set up a permanent slow streets program for the future so that more streets can be added to the program. Oh, that's cool. Um, Yeah, which is really exciting. And another provision we're really excited about is that they actually adopted a definition of slow streets 
based on metrics. So they, there's now an official type of street in San Francisco that should have no more than a thousand cars a day and have those cars going 15 miles an hour. So we're really excited about the outcome of this. It's definitely been a hard fought fight that I think we'll hear a little bit about from some of the others on this podcast, but we feel like overall, this is a huge victory for advancing safe streets and really locking in some of the gains that we made in the city uh, during the pandemic. It's crazy to think that you have to fight so hard to keep a street safe. Um, Absolutely. Uh, Jess Jenkins is also here. Jess, you're with... I'm actually mostly with Page Slow Street. It's really been a joy to take this space that's like sort of new public open space. Page Street is very popular with the residents and the nearby neighbors. I personally don't even live on it. I live a block away. My kid goes to school on it. We have just had a really good time embracing it and bringing people together, doing events on it, trying to spruce it up with art and plants and just really make it into a a welcoming, inviting space, particularly. It still is open to cars, correct? You, you just have infrastructure. Yeah, it's still open to cars. Traffic calming and pushing the pushing the city to continue to provide good traffic calming and also trying to contribute our own, which isn't always welcomed by the city, but it's typically <laughs> welcomed by residents because I think we have like more ambitious ideas about how much traffic should be calmed. It is a street that you can walk on and immediately see it's a different type of street. It's mostly bike traffic and a lot of pedestrian traffic and a lot of other cool like types of rolling traffic, like skateboards and kids on scooters and what have you. You all are getting some pushback from the city government and from NIMBY neighbors. Molly, can you address that? These slow streets have really been a great space for community. I think that it's not just about people who are on bikes. Yes, we are trying to get people to mode shift where we can't lie on rely on public transportation as much. People that are using these streets, cars are welcome on them to go locally to whatever blocks they're trying to access. We just ask that they go slow and that they share these spaces with pedestrians or kids on scooters or bicycles, or even people just walking in the middle of the street to be cognizant that everyone can use these. A fair amount, I think it may be 40% of people in San Francisco don't have a driver's license or don't have a car. Somebody feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's in that neighborhood. And so there are other people that use these streets that aren't in cars and they should have rightful access to them. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Are these hilly streets? I'm just curious. (laughs) There's some good hills on Page Street for sure. In particular, the beauty of e-bikes becoming more and more popular, at least in San Francisco, is a lot of those hills don't deter people as much anymore because they're relatively able to go up them with a little bit more ease. We also have Sarah Bars here and Sarah's from Kids Safe Streets, San Francisco. Sarah, can you talk a little bit about the pushback that you're getting from the city or from neighbors? Sure. So it's Kids Safe SF. Thank you, Taylor. And I'm also the mayor, we call them mayors, Slow Street mayors. So I'm also the Slow Street mayor of Slowhurst, which is one of the now 16 permanent Slow Streets, much like Jess and Molly are Slow Street mayors of Slow Page. So yeah, so push, so in terms of pushback, well, I think one thing, Taylor, that I would like to really think about is the fact that this is a success story. Like we got 16 Slow Streets in a program adopted. So it's it's really great, and we can be a model for the rest of the country, and maybe even LA. Maybe slow streets can come back. I hear they're pretty popular in some neighborhoods in Los Angeles. In Los Angeles, on our a lot of our slow streets, they were just marked off by traffic horses. The barricades thing, yeah, yeah. yeah. and cars yeah. kept knocking them down, and so daily we had to go out 
and set them back up and put them back up. Is that part of the mayor's job also? I don't want to speak for Jess and Molly. My street was actually a later phase slow street in the history of the pandemic. It's going to be, what, three years in February, March, which just blows my mind. Mm. But for Hearst, we were nominated as a slow street, I think, in late 2020, and then became an actual slow street in, I think, summer 2021, right around the Delta wave, if y'all remember Delta. We actually got the, it's not permanent, but we got soft hit posts with the purple slow street signs in our street bolted in. So we didn't actually have the barricades the way that some other streets did. I think Molly and Jess, you guys had those big barricades, though, right? I think we had some. Yeah. And so when a slow street is made permanent, are they adding some concrete bollards or... What are they doing to signify that this is a permanent slow street? We'll find out very soon. So like only a very select number of streets have had quote unquote, like permanent design so far, but all of the 16 official slow streets will be getting design treatments in 2023. So we're not entirely sure. Although I'm pretty sure, Paige, you guys have gotten some good street treatments. Do you want to talk about that? Please do. Unfortunately, it's not concrete. <laughs> it's um, more soft hit posts with signs. Yeah. So it's, I think that we would certainly like to see hardier, hardier treatments. However, that has been contentious with both the SFMTA and the fire department, particularly for our street. Because I guess it is because fire trucks can't make it up and down the street. If there's a hard barrier there, is that what the pushback is? That's the claim. The fire department has made it a moving target of a long running issue in San Francisco with general safe streets treatments and protected bike lanes with concrete and stuff often being pushed back by the fire department. I think we need to know how you all were successful in creating those 16 slow streets and making them permanent because Los Angeles has not been able to do that. And I think we need to organize together and pass on ideas that that worked there that can work in Louisville or Pittsburgh or Los Angeles. Robin, did you have something? To your question of like, how do we pass along lessons to other cities? I actually think this is a really important point to dig in on a little bit because as Sarah said, we were very successful in the end. So how did we overcome that opposition along the way? And I think there's a few key ingredients to that. The first one is that we had people like Jess and Molly and Sarah in all of these different neighborhoods that were working directly with their neighbors on the street to create community, to run events, to build affinity for the street itself on the ground. And when you're doing that effectively, you're getting out ahead of those opponents and you're putting a face out there where the opponents can come talk to you and really voice their concerns the street can work, neighbors on a street can work together to come up with solutions to some of the trickier issues that might show up along the way. There's one major exception where that hasn't worked quite as well, but I think on nearly all of the 16 streets that are now permanent, we did have someone who was a Sarah or a Molly or a Jess out there talking, yeah, a mayor or steward talking to their neighbors and really activating the street space. At KidSafe SF, we've brought these mayors together on a regular basis to share best practices and learn from each other and create this network of people who are working together on a common goal. So when it came time to bring this program before the SFMTA board of directors, we had thousands of people across the city who already loved their slow street, who were already on an email list, who knew a Sarah or a Jess or a Molly in their neighborhood and who respected what they had to say and wanted to see their slow street become permanent. So I think that organizing model has served us very well. 
And then the final thing I'll say about the opponents is that we faced a ballot measure that threatened to take away the JFK promenade, which is a new car-free space that we have in Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. We were all working on that campaign together in early November. San Franciscans voted by 65% to keep JFK promenade car-free. Wow, great. And what we were able to show from that is that this is incredibly popular. We had data from all the slow streets. Our transportation agency had surveyed residents of all the slow streets. We had data from other surveys that the city had done about car-free spaces. And all of those data points pointed to support between 60 and 70%. When you have a ballot measure that also has that same level of support, it's a data point that shows that this kind of thing is popular. One of the things that we've been talking a lot about on Bike Talk is that when there's only so much space we have in the roads, in, in most of our built roads, if people can see the light at the end of the tunnel of what it's like to have JFK a promenade through the park or even a slow street in your own neighborhood, it really changes hearts and minds on the ground and people learn to like to walk in their neighborhood. I live in, in West Hollywood in LA and we had put some traffic calming infrastructure right near my house, right in the middle of West Hollywood. And there was such bike lash to it or backlash to it that they took it all out. And it's really disturbing. We fought so hard to get it there and then to have it put in and then taken out three months later because of very loud voices. And I would argue very few loud voices, but they were just very loud. And I also think that our political leaders did not give it time to settle in. Today in the San Francisco Chronicle, I don't know if one of y'all can discuss that, there was an article about the data on slow streets. It corroborates everything that the SFMTA has studied themselves too, that when you reduce car traffic and slow down cars, streets get safer and more people walking and more people biking. We all know that these benefits exist hypothetically, but I think to your point, when you are able to hold on and actually have it be real in a community, it does win over a lot of people who might not be willing to try the experiment or vote for the experiment when it's still a hypothetical. I'd like to add one thing, which is that speed is not space. We have streets where cars are allowed, not only allowed, like I think in state like vehicle code that they arguably pedestrians in the street need, are supposed to get out of the way like when cars are there. But what works so well, in my opinion, about slow streets is that that access isn't changed and the speed is such a game changer. Right. And there's a lot of people who are for slow streets who aren't for bikes. I think one of the early things that I learned in campaigning or canvassing on behalf of Slowhurst when we were organizing early is how many of my neighbors just really just wanted traffic to slow down. They weren't necessarily bike people. There right. maybe aren't even people who are going to walk in the street, but we could find common ground on just like wanting the traffic on our residential street to slow down. And then I think as a perk, all of the fun events that we've done that my group has put together has really brought in a lot of people who might not otherwise have been supportive. So like broad support for going slow, and then deep support for fun community events. That's a great way to move forward in, in other cities also, I agree. I love your argument that speed is not space, that we still allocate all that space for cars, whether they be parked or moving, we just 
slow down the speed when they do choose to move. That's great. England has a program called 20 is Plenty, where they try to make neighborhoods 20 kilometers an hour, which is like 12 and a half miles an hour, even better, I think. If these 16 streets are a success, are you done? Are you going to disband? What's next? Well, we're not done. <laughs> we have never done, even though we'd like to be. We're tired. But uh, no, we're very passionate about continuing making progress um, among these spaces. The San Francisco MTA has asked that by the end of Q1, we come with a network of connected streets across the 49 square miles of San Francisco or across the city, because a true connected network is really only going to work when you can access the other streets. It's not going to work when they're all on their own islands, so to speak. And then in, in the meantime, there's some work that we're going to continue to do with the SFMTA on, on helping make sure that we're hitting the message home with that people are welcome on these streets and it's not privatizing these streets. Everybody is still welcome here. We just ask that you use care and go slow. I think that your point, Sarah, was great about don't just promote bikes, promote slow, safe streets for everybody, pedestrians and as they say, eight to 80, eight-year-olds and 80-year-olds. What else is on your docket? Let's see. For Page Slow Street, we are adjacent to an arterial and nestled sort of between an arterial and commercial quarter and a freeway ramp. And so until we had like actual traffic diversion, there were a lot more cars on Page. There was literally a three block backup, like freeway backup, backup on our on Page Street, which is was still at the time a bike route that bikes just literally were weaving between the traffic to get to downtown to their jobs or whatever. For us, we are pushing the city to continue that diversion because it is common for people to use it as a cut through. So that's a big thing, but people are very enthusiastic about Page, and there's more ideas for things we'd like to see happen on it. We'd like to see it become something more like a linear park, honestly, a place where you really feel like you want to go and be there. Like it's a joy to travel on and a joy to hang out on. And to do that kind of does require ongoing effort, just like a park requires ongoing effort. And so establishing that community around it is a big part of what we're doing. And Molly said, connecting it to a network so people can get to it all around the city. So you can get from point A to point B, not just up and down your street. Um, You know, thank you all so much for your work in making San Francisco a safer, more livable city. It's already a great city, but to make it even more comfortable for pedestrians and cyclists and things like that. And thank you for coming on Bike Talk. Can you all tell me quickly your Instagram or your Twitter handles or feeds or so that our listeners can reach out and find you all and either learn what's going on or see some pictures or something like that? Sure. I'll go for page. (laughs) We're pageslowstreet.org on the interwebs. And then on our social media handles, you can find us at Instagram and Twitter, both at page slow street we're also on mastodon too so same handle yeah great and how about hearst we're slowhurst.org and that's hearst as in william randolph hearst so h-e-a-r-s-t and we are only on twitter i think the same handle at slowhurst I have one more, which is follow KidsSafeSF. We're at KidsSafeSF.com and on Twitter and Instagram at KidsSafeSF. Perfect. Thank you all very much for coming on Bike Talk. Thanks. Thank you for having us, Taylor. That was Taylor Nichols with Jess Jenkins, Molly Hayden, Sarah Bars, and Robin Pam. Next, Isabella Chu, who studies transportation and health outcomes at the Stanford Center for Population Health Sciences. Isabella's views do not necessarily reflect the opinions of her employer. 
people evolved to use their bodies for transportation. So people evolved to walk about five to 10 kilometers a day. And when you eliminated that at the population level, you see all kinds of health consequences. And these are largely unmeasured. The way we have a sense of how big this impact is actually when physicians or programs prescribe 15 to 30 minutes typically of walking a day to address health problems. And It's not exactly a panacea, but it's pretty close. Regular walking improves cognition, mental health, cardiovascular health, uh, musculoskeletal health. In every organ system, regular physical activity, particularly walking or something more vigorous like biking, has these huge positive health effects. So when it becomes a recreational activity where you have to carve out special time. You need the luxury of the time and money to go to recreationally exercise rather than just how you get around. This has really big health effects. And one of the most important studies on this was a BMJ article published in 2017 where they looked- I'm sorry, they were able, BMJ? Oh, British Medical Journal. So they did a study looking at people who walked and biked to work. And for those who walk to work, there's about a 25% reduction in all-cause mortality. And for those who bike to work, there's about a 40% reduction in all-cause mortality. For those of us who don't know some of these terms. Sure. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like people who walk to work were about 25% less likely to die. And people who bike to work were about 40% less likely to die. If I'm a woman in my mid fifties, I have a certain probability of death over a particular two to three year period. And if I'm a person who walks or bikes to work, the chances that I'm going to die of anything, cancer, heart attack, stroke, whatever, is about 25 to 40% less if I'm a person who walks or bikes to work. It's a huge effect. And if you think about it, it completely makes sense. Again, if we're a species that evolved to use our bodies as our primary source of transportation uh, and to have, you know, sort of moderate to vigorous movement for an hour or two every day, uh, maybe an hour or three every day, and that goes to, to close to zero unless somebody is able to carve out time, it affects almost every system in the body. Mm-hmm. You know, if you think about the the U.S. transportation system as it exists today, so our departments of transportation have have set the three-ton car as the base unit of transportation, and they measure almost everything they do in terms of cars moved. And when you design a transportation system that way, it is almost by necessity and definition hostile to walking, biking, and transit. You know, you can kind of have a, a system that's good for driving in or a system that's comfortable to walk or bike in, but but not both. Is that changing? Yes and no. I don't know if there's a, an increased awareness of the health effects of displacing active transportation, but certainly an increased awareness of the health effects of particulate matter. We call it PM 2.5, which is these really small particles that really get into the lungs I think cities are certainly starting to have vision zero pledges. But if you look at the numbers, pedestrian deaths, and that's cyclist deaths that track with pedestrian deaths, typically, pedestrian deaths have been going up 7 to 15% a year. So I think there are more bike lanes, but a lot more people are dying. Why, Why is that? Do we know? Yeah. So if you think about pedestrian and cyclist deaths, it's largely a physics and geometry problem. SUVs and and trucks, which are starting to become a bigger and bigger percentage of the cars on the road, have worse visibility. So that means they're more likely to hit. And then given that 
they hit a vulnerable road user who has no airbags or steel frame around them, they're more likely to seriously injure or kill them. Um, you know, a car that weighs 6,000 pounds is a lot more damaging at the same speed than a car that weighs 2,000 pounds. Why are they getting bigger? So there are a lot of reasons for this. One of them is the CAFE standards. I think there's talk of reforming those, but basically our government subsidizes these huge vehicles. They're very profitable for the automobile industry, and so they're aggressively marketed. The automobile industry spends about $14 billion a year marketing automobiles, and these big cars are are the most profitable sector of the industry. So those are more aggressively marketed typically. Okay. <laughs> it's it's daunting. It's like when they made bigger sodas. Yeah, with the important difference that I can choose to buy a big soda or not. I do agree that making something available and cheap kind of tips my decision in a particular direction. But I have agency in that. I can decide to buy a soda or not. As a person who walks and bikes for transportation, I have no choice but to be exposed to these huge cars. There is no alternate transportation system that I can use, and I'm not able to leave my house or go anywhere without using our roads. And these huge vehicles are on our roads, and I can't opt out of it. And because they're big, you need a bigger one. It's an arms race. And this is anecdata, but you know, I have friends who had a, a small sedan and they got into a crash. And the car they replaced it with was a, you know, a huge tank-like SUV. And it's because they felt safer. You know, you have this effect where it's sort of an arms race where people feel safer in a big tank-like car. And again, there are no alternate routes that are free from secondhand driving. There, there's no way to opt out of this exposure. All right. And now for the good news. Go ahead. <laughs> The good news. There is some good news. The new leadership of the National Department of Transportation is better than anything we've had in decades. And I think at least, well, they have publicly acknowledged the crisis of death on our roads and that many of the decisions made in the middle of the last century were explicitly designed to harm and divide vulnerable communities. And so there, there's just a sort of acknowledgement of this history we have of a transportation system designed to benefit one group of people at the direct expense of another. So that's good news. They have not gone so far as to acknowledge that basing our entire transportation system on the car rather than the person is, is the problem. Automobiles are manufactured in politically important states. There's a huge number of jobs tied to this. So doing anything which really takes the automobile on, automobile industry on head on is very politically tricky. They probably know that there are problems with our transportation system. So that's some good news. I think certainly cities are starting to make different kinds of decisions. They're starting to put in bike lanes. They're starting to put in even protected bike lanes. I'm not sure the degree to which social pressure works. However, the Manual on Uniform Traffic Designs and Standards basically had about 10 times as many comments in this last round as it did in the previous round. I think the previous round was in 2009. This last round was in like 2020, 2021. They got over 10 to 20,000 comments. And virtually all the comments were really saying, hey, we have to really rethink our transportation system. So I think at least that there's a heightened awareness that this is a quite serious issue. Getting back to how humans have evolved to move around for transportation and right. how it's so much more healthy to still do that. 
Yeah. I guess there are parts of the world where people still do that. Places where people are very poor. Again, cars are extremely expensive. They're expensive to buy. They're expensive to insure and maintain and fuel. Everything about a car is very expensive. And the, the infrastructure to have cars is very expensive. So places that are quite low income, where the typical income is very low, are much more likely to use walking. Biking is not so common, but walking is transportation. And then what I would say wealthier nations where they've come through the automobile centrism and come out on the other side, places like Europe, certain countries in Asia have really gone to a transit walk bike mode. You mentioned like lower income places are actually right. living in ways that are more natural. There are a lot of areas like that. There are certain... Yeah ways of eating or certain ways of living in community that are right that got less healthy as people got more industrialized. Yeah, I want to be careful with that in that evenly distributed wealth is one of the most powerful health interventions there is. One of the best health interventions you can give is to give somebody a job. And then depending on their circumstances, it may be actually better for them to be able to take a non-walking form of transportation. Like anything, the dose makes the poison. And I would say places where people could drive, but they don't because the system has been optimized for walking, biking, and transit have the best dose of physical activity with respect to transportation. So is there an ideal? Is there a place that we should all be heading towards? Is it <laughs> I think the ideal dose of transportation varies throughout the life course. Of the places I personally have visited, I'd say Copenhagen probably has it the most right. I'm sure there's places that have done it even better. Kyoto in Japan, I think, was as good as Copenhagen. So of the places I visited, those two seem to have had the best infrastructure for getting around easily and delightfully without a car. There's a few places that really stand out for transportation, yeah. Yeah. sharing the roads. So your job is to just look at... So my job, strictly speaking, is to identify and acquire data for health research for use in those kinds of projects, to build relationships with organizations, governments, things like that, and to learn what the processes are for gaining access to these high value data sets that have health outcomes. That's really my job. It just happens to be that my personal research interest is in the interaction between land use policy, housing, transportation, and health. Is this because you're a cyclist? It's funny, it's a chicken and egg thing. If you bike to work, it's very natural to start thinking about like, why is my life at risk at least twice a month? Like, why do I have a close call at least a couple times a month? Why do I have to bike on this dilapidated, broken, narrow, obstructed sidewalk when there's seven lanes of car infrastructure freshly paved right next to me, two of which are just for storing people's property. Like, I think those are very natural questions to ask if you're a person who rides a bike. Like the question about like, how much does centering our entire transportation system on the car and the displacement of walking impact health? We actually don't know the answer to that question yet, or at least I haven't seen any papers which have dealt with it. So you bike around, you're at Stanford? My home is in South Redwood City, uh, and I love my city, but the, the bike infrastructure on my side of town is terrible. So I have a, a calmed street. The thing that makes biking dangerous is the exposure to cars. And so whatever you do to reduce that exposure makes it fine. So I have a calm street and then a really scary chunk. And then I'm in Menlo Park 
and in Palo Alto and Menlo Park and Palo Alto actually have quite good bike infrastructure. But twice a month, your life is endangered. Yeah, I'd I'd say about twice a month, I have a a close call. (laughs) Do you shout data at people? No, I shout, be careful, watch out. Like I try not to swear or try to like, like I want them to look back on the interaction and say that woman shouted, be careful at me. She wasn't irrational. So yeah. And then on my way to work, I pass schools and I'm often riding with a lot of kids on their way to school. And quite often kids do dumb things because they're kids. And I think one of the things that that really distresses me the most is our transportation system assumes that every road user is reasonable and prudent. That's actually in documents, all the documents. Teenagers are not always reasonable and prudent. It's funny, I've been looking at the NHTSA, NISTA. Their messaging about teens, the responsibilities, your teens, kids need to be safe and sound and sensible getting to wear bright colors. And... Yeah. Yeah. Getting 220 million kids to have the sort of judgment of a middle-aged woman or man to, to think like their grandparents is just never going to happen. Like kids are kids. And so if you have a transportation system that's based on walking, biking, and transit, kids can do really stupid stuff and they might get a road raspberry, but they're not going to die. And my expectation is kids will do dumb things. I certainly did as a kid and almost everyone I know did. Yeah. So we have to change everything. Which is a heavy lift. I think there are things that we could do before the quote, before the revolution. I don't think that it's either everything changes overnight or the status quo. Things that we could do is to stop subsidizing the worst aspects of our transportation system. If we don't see base assumptions changed, if departments of transportation continue on the path that they've been on for 70 years, we're going to waste a once in a generation opportunity to right the ship. And we are going to dare ourselves into a deeper hole. And so I think now is a really pivotal time for action. And one of the things I've been thinking about is even the right to safe passage as a civil right. The current system on our roads is that depending on the mode you're using, you have a completely different set of privileges, you know, subsidies and civil rights. And so, you know, I own a car, as do most people who ride a bike. And when I'm in my car, the entire system is optimized for my convenience and the the throughput of my vehicle. If I'm distracted or negligent or angry or aggressive, and I hit or hurt somebody on foot or who is riding a bike, basically that the chances of anything beyond a ticket happening to me are extremely low. And even the storage of my property, if I want to park my two and a half ton vehicle, I think it's two, I think my vehicle is a little over two tons. I want to park my two ton vehicle on the public right of way. That is typically prioritized over the physical safety of somebody who is traveling outside of a car. And so I really have been thinking a lot about this huge disparity in sort of basic rights on the public right of way. And that because it is a public good, like roads and streets are a public good, and there's no alternative, that I'm starting to think that civil rights is a good framing for thinking about what we should see on foot or somebody on a bike. 
should have equal rights to safe passage. I should be just as safe on my bike as I would be in a car for the same amount of person time. My, my safety on a bike should be prioritized over the storage of a motorist property. So that's one point. And then I think the other point is just going back to the history of our transportation system. It was explicitly designed to divide and often destroy vulnerable communities. It's been incredibly effective at that. Whole communities of color were removed to make way for highways. They still have much higher exposures to particulate matter, noise, blunt force trauma from traffic. And these disparities persist to today. Not only that, about a third of disabilities completely preclude the ability to drive. And so there's this huge percentage of our population where our transportation system is systemically directly harming them and they have no alternative. So that's just the framing I've been thinking about quite a bit lately. Thank you, Isabella Chu. And we can find you on Twitter. So my personal Twitter is at Bella Chu 10. Thanks for coming on. You bet. It was fun. Take care. That was Isabella Chu, a public health researcher. Next, we have an interview with Kim Fultz, transportation planner for the Boston Transportation Department on the city's free bike share during the transit shutdown last September. Galen Mook, Bike Talk host and Massachusetts Bike Coalition Executive Director, interviews Kim Fultz with Mixmaster Molly. All right, welcome to Bike Talk, Kim Fultz, transportation planner from the Boston Transportation Department. We are proud to have you on. We are joined also by Mixmaster Molly, we just had a major transit, let's just call it a rejiggering here in the city of Boston, where we had to shut down an entire line of our subway system. And the people who utilized that line had to modify their behavior. We had some shuttle buses out. But one of the big things that happened in terms of biking was that we had a bike share system, Blue Bikes, that was offering free monthly passes for folks who were going to try Blue Bikes and biking on the routes through the Orange Line throughout the course of the Orange Line shutdown. So we are proud to have Kim here from BTD to talk a little bit about what happened during this. But Kim, from the inside, how did it go for the city of Boston? First of all, thanks for having me here. I'm really happy to be joining you and glad to share a little bit of this really wild ride, the Orange Line shutdown. So from the moment we got wind that the Orange Line was very possibly shutting down and then very probably and most certainly shutting down, it was really just all hands on deck in the transportation department in terms of really figuring out how we were going to help keep people moving throughout the region and particularly along the Orange Line corridor. Just a little bit of context. First of all, Blue Bikes is our public bike share system. It's owned by the municipalities and we manage it cooperatively. So Cambridge, Somerville, Brookline, Everett, Boston, we're all voting members of the body that oversees the bike share system. And each of the 12 municipalities owned our bike share system. So we really saw this as a moment for our public transportation system that's owned by the cities to really step up to the plate and help fill a really critical transportation role. So we immediately started talking about what would it take to make bike share free. We recognized that the closure of the Orange Line was going to be a major disruption and really be a lot of trouble for people. So we wanted to make bike share as easy as possible to help mitigate that impact and encourage people to jump on bikes. So we were able to get some funding to get the monthly passes free for all Blue Bike users for the duration of the shutdown. 
We also very quickly mobilized in the city of Boston to identify locations where we could expand the capacity of the stations themselves. So add new docks. And in some cases, this meant moving stations to new locations or shifting them down the sidewalk a little bit. I think we added somewhere around 50 new docks just in Boston on or near the Orange Line corridor. And then we also identified locations where we could have staffed valet stations. So a valet station is where there's a person there to receive bikes or release bikes. And these were positioned in areas where we knew there'd be a lot of shuttle pickups and drop-offs. So to make it easy for people to find a bike in the places where they were most likely going to be. What were the numbers of the daily riders on the Orange Line that needed to have the services augmented? And then I'm curious as to what were the numbers of riders that you saw uptick on the blue bike system itself? 80,000 people or something that moved daily on the orange line, maybe as many as 100,000. It's in that ballpark. Typically, our blue bike system in the period leading up to the orange line shutdown, we would be seeing maybe about 15,000 trips per day during a busy month like July, August. So we're moving a lot of people on a regular basis. As soon as the Orange Line shut down and those free passes became available, the ridership just spiked. So over the course of the shutdown, the average was about 20,000, 20 and a half thousand people on blue bikes per day. That grew over the course of the shutdown. So by the end, it was more like 24,000 a day. We kept hitting ridership records and then exceeding those (laughs) ridership records. I think we broke like 10 daily ride records over the course of that month long shutdown. So it was really phenomenal. 10 broken records in 30 days with just a little bit of incentive. It was massive to see. And when you put the numbers in context, and I looked it up on the MassDOT website, 26,000 plus is the new record right now, 26,852, if I'm not mistaken. (laughs) That's on par with average daily ridership in the Silver Line, right? Yeah. So I know Dom last year was saying, we move almost as many people as the number one bus every day. Well, now we're bumping it up to Silver Line numbers with very little incentive. Obviously, this is a massive disruption and kudos to the city of Boston for coming up with the funding to make this available to folks as a mitigation effort. But this just shows you people will ride these things. They'll get out and they will ride and we need to invest more and we want to get that word out. I'm curious, Kim. So there was not a lot of time to deal with this. You got like two and a half weeks notice, right? How did you work with the advocacy orgs? How did you work with the DOT, the municipalities? And what I was seeing from my biking perspective was every day there were convoys of people willing to lead group rides for people who were new to riding. I'm curious how the city got engaged and some of the resources and kind of the peer-to-peer support that was required in order to make this a success. Yeah, it is really hard to understate how much people did step up to the plate. I know I used that phrase before, but there was a lot of work that went into how can we help people find routes and get paired up with other people who are riding, like really thinking about this holistically. So you're curious, but not super comfortable taking a bike to and from work. What's it going to take to provide that support? So there was some great contributions from advocacy organizations, but also a lot of my colleagues who were all themselves experts in different parts of the city and getting to and from. And so just really sitting down and thinking through how do we communicate this information out there to people? I think it got out through a whole bunch of different channels. 
And I think there wasn't nearly the same kind of (laughs) jockeying for space that maybe sometimes there is. It was just everybody kind of came together and recognized, like, we've got to help out here. And also, this is a tremendous opportunity to help people recognize the tremendous potential that there is in using a bike for getting around the city and how truly bikeable our city and our region is and can be. Yeah, I love that. The spin to make this the opportunity that it really became I've been calling it the ruby slippers, right? We just have to click our heels. We have not invested in a comprehensive way in cycling in the region. And yet Blue Bikes is 16 million rides strong since it launched in 2011, quietly serving the metro region. And it just keeps going. And that spike is just something that hopefully is a wake up call to say, wow, it's just a little bit of incentives to get people on them. Now let's work on the infrastructure, which I know the city of Boston and the region is doing, but the city of Boston specifically saying that they're going to, I think, front load another nine miles of separated cycling facilities based on what they saw. And they said, clearly, this is a priority. And that's going to be what gets people who might be a little bit hesitant to just get out there and ride. And so we're thrilled. We really feel that we're sort of at a moment. And I've been doing this a long time, and I always feel like we're almost at that moment. But this really feels like, could we be at 50.1%? Could we be sort of pushing over that mark? And when you think about a region that's choked with traffic, when 50% of the trips in the Commonwealth are four miles or fewer, and the reach of Blue Bike. All we have to do is simple arithmetic here, right? This is no calculus needed. Bikes can really play an outsized role in our decarbonization efforts. Absolutely. And we are putting a lot of work into our bike infrastructure, you know, protected bike lanes and so forth, and really connecting up that network. We are similarly putting a lot of effort into expanding our bike share network, as we have done over the last four years or so. The blue bike systems throughout the metro region. Blue bikes is now in 12 different municipalities, which is kind of mind boggling. But in the city of Boston, which is where I work, where we've done the work. Bike share is in every single neighborhood. Almost 90% of residents are within a 10 minute walk of a bike share station. And that has come because of very deliberate planning. We've said, this is our public transportation. It is our obligation to make sure that it is available throughout our city, not just in the popular touristy areas and not just in the downtown job centers, but we need to provide access everywhere. And we have really worked steadily toward that goal. It's the third busiest bike share system in the country. And during the Orange Line shutdown, we were within 100,000 trips of what the city of Chicago was at on bike share. So Our bike share system is really something that we're proud of and that we've worked really hard on. And we hope that this really is the moment for it as we're continuing to put some additional resources in it. The orange line shutdown certainly revealed where some of the weaknesses are. You can see where more bikes and docks are really needed. And as we move into the next year or two, where we're really going to be focused on some pretty significant expansion of bike share again. We're looking at those areas that are the most stressed in the network and figuring out how we can get some additional capacity there. You couldn't have asked for a better pilot trial by fire, but now we know where, like you say, the stress points are and where you're most needed. And Kim, we were talking earlier before we jumped on that you've been at this for 10 years and it's only been a positive trajectory. And we've been following Hubway and Blue Bikes, as it was called before, the bike sharing system here. It's been kind of formative as the city has developed and expanded that also Blue Bikes and bike sharing has as well. Do you think there was a ripple effect for people who had nothing to do with the Orange Line who saw the opportunity to hop on Blue Bikes and are now giving it a try? 
Yeah, absolutely. We've heard anecdotal stories of people who said, hey, I got this free pass and I tried it out and I loved it. Some of them have wandered into our office. We have a discounted membership for people who are on public assistance or have incomes that would qualify for that. So they heard about the free pass and then want to keep on writing completely apart from where they're living geographically in the region, just the opportunity to try out bike share for free was there and they took advantage of it and now are wanting to keep on riding. And I'm sure that happened elsewhere. I don't have very good <laughs> hard data to point to. Yeah, We're really looking forward to seeing what the spring brings. Bike share usage is very seasonal. So the numbers that we had during the Orange Line shutdown was like phenomenal, completely busted through any kind of numbers. We were in the 80 something thousand members by comparison, just before the Orange Line shutdown, we had, I think about 31,000 members getting close to tripling the numbers. A lot of those people dropped off as their free month pass expired, but they've all been introduced to bike share now. And come springtime, when the weather starts getting nicer, some of those people are are going to start thinking about biking again and hopefully remember a good experience that they had getting around the area on a bike and we'll come back to bike share. So we're really excited to see what next year brings. We've always said that bike sharing is the gateway bike. People yeah. who weren't thinking of it before, they get on one and now they're hooked. So I'm curious as to see what kind of repeat customers we're looking at. Yeah, absolutely. When the city said, hey, we're going to make 30-day passes available, did you expect 59,000 redemptions? No. <laughs> no, absolutely not. And in fact, our operator made some projections for us and it was based on DC. So DC had had a similar shutdown of a transit line and they provided a free pass. And I don't even remember now what the numbers were, but way, way under that. It was within less than a week that we had already completely blown through the number of passes that we thought we were going to be providing. And that we were really committed to making bike share very easily accessible and eliminate as many of the barriers to entry as we could. Michelle Wu, the mayor, first off, was a huge believer in the power of biking. And my favorite anecdote is because she lives along the Orange Line herself, decided to bike into work during the Orange Line shutdown. One, to see how it is for the average citizen who's doing this commute as well, but two, because her normal commute was disrupted. <laughs> and then two is that Mayor Wu has put free transit or as affordable as possible transit as one of her platform pitches that she's backed up. So there's a few free bus lines that the city is buying into to guarantee that the neighborhoods that are least well-served by public transit at least have the affordability aspect. So I'm curious, is the city's commitment to making these free blue bike passes as an equity conversation, as a transit conversation, do you think that's a lesson learned? If we're willing to pay for bus lines to be free, does it also make sense to pay for some of these blue bike stations that are in similarly hard hit neighborhoods just the same? Absolutely. We have learned if you want to get people on bikes or on bike share, you know, make it free. <laughs> so we're definitely in some discussions about what does this mean going forward? Blue Bikes is a bit of a complicated beast as it is jointly managed and owned. And we've got a revenue sharing agreement with our operator. And so it's not just the city of Boston's decision about anything that has to do with pricing. But there definitely are a lot of lessons to learn out of this Orange Line shutdown and the Blue Bikes response. And so we're absolutely thinking very hard about those things and what it means for the future of bike share. Yeah. 
And I wonder if I could jump in the concept of intermodality. When we do traffic studies or we do traffic planning, historically, we've been doing them sort of mode siloed. And I've said this to the MPO every spring, they put out their thing, what should we work on this year when we get some more research funding? I'm like, I want to know how many people are doing more than one thing. I want to know about those connections from bus to rail, from bus to bike share, from bike share to TNC or something. We can't address each portion of the trip until we really understand and measure what those trips actually are. Well, Kim, maybe I'll end with this. What is your vision for Blue Bikes? I said that we're up to about 90% of residents who are reached by Blue Bikes. I want to get that as close to 100 as I can. That's been our goal to reach everybody. And we take that very seriously. I want us to get there. I'd like to see us crack the nut a little bit better on bike share operations. Part of that is increasing the density of our network so that we really have the capacity where and when we need it. But just really, really working hard to make sure that our bike share system is easy to access. It's there for people when they need it. It's at a price point that people can afford. I think there's a whole lot that's going for bike share, and we just got to keep on working away at it. Well, I'm a beneficiary. I've got my Hubway Pass somewhere around here. I took one yesterday. Thanks for letting me get through my neighborhood in no time flat. All right. Glad to hear it. Yeah, we'll keep it up, Kim. We had Kim Fultz, transportation planner with the Boston Transportation Department. She's been working on blue bikes for the better part of a decade and really helped us through this transit crisis that we had here in the region. And Kim, we're indebted to your service here. Thank you. All right. Truly. Thanks, you guys. Thank you. That was Mass Bikes' Galen Mook, Mixmaster Mully, and Boston Transportation Department planner Kim Fultz. And that was Bike Talk. Thanks to co-hosts Lindsay, Taylor, Seamus, and Galen, and Kevin Burton for editing. If you have a story, a tip, or a topic, head over to biketalk.org and send us a message. Talk again next week. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Get on your bike. Sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Yourself a bike. Oh, catch yourself a bike.